it is my uh, privilege to be here this morning and to share some things with you that uh, I felt like as I was going through scripture that God just kind of put on my heart. Um, and so uh, I trust that as I start in, uh, that we can just trust this time um, to the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will speak uh, to each one of you, knowing what you need um, to hear this morning. So um, the, the sermon that uh, I've kind of got outlined here actually really picks up from where Russ uh, left off last week. And so I'm looking at, um, I'm looking at Proverbs 14, and uh, Russ had touched on Proverbs 15. So we're going back a proverb um, this morning, and for about two-thirds of my sermon, I'm going to be introducing the thing that's really on my heart to say. Um, but there's a lot of setup for good reason, and what I hope is that as we really get to that part at the end, that um, you really hear the Spirit speaking to your heart in all of it, but especially uh, as we sort of get into that last third of it. So to recap a little bit, um, Russ talked last week from Proverbs 15 um, about anger, and uh, I really appreciated this. Um, the idea that very often we think of anger in terms of rage, and I certainly do. Um, and uh, then Russ posted this list of traits that are traits that are also anger. And as he went through this, I thought, oh dear, this is absolutely stuff that I struggle with, right? Resentment, unforgiveness, indignation, maliciousness, belligerence, revenge and envy, and even irony, contempt, irritability, sulkiness. In the back of my head, I thought, and sarcasm, and, right? That sort of subtle list of things that we can carry and we can get away with it because it doesn't show on the outside as much as putting your fist through a wall does. Um, and yet, this notion that anger, when disordered, destroys. Um, that anger, when disordered, proves chaotic to wisdom, to community, and to our bodies. So there's this idea that uh, we have been talking about wisdom and the pursuit of wisdom, not just knowledge, but uh, understanding, um, applying that knowledge and living into wisdom. And anger, when it is disordered, tears at that. We can build um, out of a place of wisdom, and then one seed of resentment can take hold, and it can just fester in a way that really tears out the thing that we have applied our wisdom to. Um, community. We can build community. We can be a part of building community. And then, in a moment of um, dis <laughs> disordered rage, just tear at that community, whether it's a single individual, whether it's a group of people, um, that uh, a need to control um, can lead to contempt, and that contempt can tear out a marriage. I have heard psychologists cite contempt as the number one red flag for the end of a marriage. 
um, that there are things that we can recognize um, as a kind of outpouring of anger, but when we go back, we see the seed of that thing can be a lot more subtle. Our own bodies, we know this. Um, we know this from studies that have been done on levels of cortisol and how we collectively in our society carry very high levels of cortisol um, in our body. That cortisol is not good for us. It's that stress chemical that we get and that anger is an, an, a trigger to cortisol, right? So all of a sudden, um, we're carrying around that extra adrenaline that we get. And it's a little bit addictive, let's be honest, right? kind of nice to just feel a little angry about things and then we get to get more done, right? And yet, we also know, all the studies show, not good for our heart, not good for our internal well-being, our minds. Um, my sister's a nurse and she has told me before, yeah, cortisol is one of the more toxic things we can have floating around our system. So there's this idea that anger is all of these different things, and it does all of these different things when it is disordered. And so, we tend to think in terms of uh, anger in disordered situation, when it is disordered, when it hits disordered situations, but what does that actually mean? Um, so, a fight with a significant other, that is one of the more obvious, right? But if you think about how anger can work in situations that really require a moment of anger, what is it to have ordered anger, right? To consider the context. Have you ever seen kids being mean <laughs> to a kid, right? I've been on the playground. I've watched it go down. These are not my children. This is not my circus, not my monkeys, and I'm in. I'm like, hey, guys, hey, guys. This is not kind. This is not kind. Can we introduce kindness to this conversation right now? Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, not my people, but, right? There's that sort of feeling of injustice, and we know what that looks like when we pick up the newspaper. We know what it looks like when we engage with friends and we hear their story. Um, context. So the context where we recognize injustice. How long do we hold on to that? I can step away from that situation at the park, but when I continue to experience uh, my friends and their stories and their ongoing treatment and how they are treated and the injustice of that, or when I pick up the newspaper and I read about ongoing injustice and I just, my skin, it just ugh, gets under my skin, how long do I hold on to that? How long is that healthy for me to hold on to? So there's this idea that anger needs to have an, some kind of goal. There needs to be some kind. The anger itself is not the, the end, right? Even in scripture, we see anger that is ordered, right? Jesus in the temple, the guy was angry, angry, okay? It wasn't a kind of like, come on, really? No, it was turning over tables. This would have made people very uncomfortable. I would have been uncomfortable. I don't like that kind of rage. And I've been in situations where people start moving the furniture, and it's like, nope, I'm out, right? I duck. I'm like, nope, I don't do this well. So yeah, 
I would have come into the temple, Jesus would have been overturning tables, and I would have been like, I'm out. I don't know what's going on, but I don't want, right? So that kind of rage made manifest because of injustice had a goal. Jesus wanted to make a point, right? And so what kind of goal do we see, and how do we process between that context, length, and goal, how do we move into a place? And so we were asking ourselves last week as Russ was going through this, how do we move to a place of ordered anger? Russ brought up Ephesians 4.26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. So right there, scripture identifies that anger and sin are two different things. Anger is not necessarily sin. The idea that we don't let the sun go down on our anger in the Jewish tradition, uh, sunset is the next day. So the next day begins at sunset, right? So we can take that literally and say, hey, it's not a good idea to go to bed angry. We kind of all know that. It doesn't work real well if you've ever gone to bed angry. Uh, It doesn't work well. But also that notion of going into the next thing angry right? It's the idea that there's a delineation that says, I don't want to finish this thing angry, this thing that I'm doing. I have taken, undertaken an endeavor, and I've undertaken a goal, and I don't want to just finish it completely angry. I want to identify, okay, I did it. Can I let the anger go and move on? I need to get angry about something else, that's okay. Can that be for another moment? Can it be for another day? And then healing. And this was something that Russ kind of wrapped up with. But this idea of healing, we need to be able to heal. We need to be able to heal from anger, um, disordered anger that was perpetrated against us that had no outlet. There was nothing we could do. It did not resolve appropriately. We also need to be able to heal from our own anger, anger that we carry, situations that we are not able to do everything about. And so can we identify that we have done a thing about it? And is there a way to begin to heal? Sometimes we can see that we carry anger and we continue to carry it and we don't know why. That's okay. That's part of the process. And so being able to analyze and identify what are some of the reasons why? What does that let us know about ourselves, a circumstance, something we've maybe not properly considered? Um, I'm not actually one who has been in the past particularly good at processing anger. And it has been as Holy Spirit has begun to stir in me an understanding of how I need to be able to process anger, that I have discovered things that I am deeply, deeply invested in that I didn't actually know that I was. I was putting so much effort into not being angry or hiding my anger. I actually was angry, but I was hiding my anger. I was so afraid of how it would look if I started to process the anger. Anger can be humiliating. When you get really angry, it can feel really humiliating because you don't feel in control. And so it makes us feel kind of foolish. 
And if we actually get to a place where we recognize uh, it's okay to be really angry, then what do we, where do we go from there? What do we do with that? Where do we go from there? And those are really great questions to begin to answer instead of spending so much time just being clamped down and trying to control, right, that thing that every once in a while is just going to, right, the volcano is going to blow. So, anger. So, this is, this is what I had been thinking on. This is what we looked at last week and what I had been thinking on as I came to the passage of Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14 is this beautiful passage that examines how it is that we, as human beings, can get ourselves into so much trouble so quickly when it comes to our interaction in the world. And the way that this is identified is through the term foolishness or to talk about the fool. Starts out, the wise woman builds her house, but with her own hands, the foolish one tears her down, hers down. I'm going to start with that passage because um, I think we've been discussing Lady Wisdom throughout this series where we've been talking about Proverbs. And right here, this passage opens up. And we could read this as, okay, ladies, don't do this. But hmm, really. So instead of thinking that only women tear their houses down um, or applying this to ourselves individually, I think it's wiser to consider that Lady Wisdom builds her house and the foolish one tears their house down. And so understanding that this is all, all of Proverbs is written in the form of poetry, right? We have this idea that poetry is able to contain concepts like Lady Wisdom or the fool right? So as a kid, I read a lot of Proverbs, and here I am reading about the fool and thinking, oh, well, I always got the idea of a kind of court jester in my head reading about the fool, and I didn't identify with that at all. And let's be honest, not a lot of us want to identify with the notion of being a fool, right? We don't. That's not something where... So where I can identify that I might have some issues with nuanced anger, I don't want to think, oh, but I am just a fool, right? So I think what helps in considering this passage is the notion that um, we have turned the idea of a fool into caricature. And we can do that with poetry. Um, the notion of a character is a description which is exaggerated in order to create a comic or a grotesque effect. And while that works for some of scripture, what it does is it tends to cause us to kind of distance ourselves and say, that's not me. I don't do that. In the very same way that we did with Russ's passage last week, it's like, well, I don't put my fist through walls most of the time. So that's not really me. And what I'm going to encourage us to do this morning is consider that no, actually, it isn't really a caricature. It is poetry. But poetry uses a lot of different techniques. And I would say this one is more personification, that there is this idea 
with personification that you can have a representation of an abstract quality in human form. So foolishness is kind of an abstract quality, and if you put it in human form, as in the fool, right, then you can start to think, well, the fool does this, and the fool does this, right? And then we can identify that actually this can be pretty nuanced. And this particular passage has a lot of different ways of examining what the fool or a foolish person does. Spoiler alert, so does most of Proverbs. And I think when we start to really look at it, we can identify ourselves in the role of the fool. Instead of holding it at arm's length and thinking of this character with the silly hat and the bells, we can say, no, actually, maybe. So let's take a look at the list of things that appear in Proverbs 14. And you can read through this proverb. Um, these are just some of the things that I distilled out um, of this proverb. Uh, tearing down your own home is foolish. Uh, being devious, uh, a good example is when your mouth gets you in trouble, uh, or bearing false witness, scoffing, avoiding reconciliation, trusting what you have built and putting your faith in that, thinking you have it all figured out, not being cautious or being gullible, being quick-tempered, that's in there twice, just in 14, just in chapter 14 not considering nuance or complexity in a situation, courting the rich and powerful, talking and not doing, and envy. Just in chapter 14, these came out real quick. So this is a quick list. And as I went through, I thought, huh, yeah, I can identify with a lot of what is being talked about here. I can identify with the fact that I will react to a situation, not considering the nuance or the complexity of it. I'm quick to jump and say, hey, you know what? That was so da-da-da-da-da. And I get frustrated and irritated, and I don't consider there might have been a little bit more nuance to it. Talking and not doing. Personally, I'm just going to fess up to this one right here. I'm really good at talking a good game, and then I don't follow through. And then I like to hide that I didn't. So I kind of do like a little thing that showed that I started. Um, I learned that one in school, and I'm still working to not do that. If you don't mind backing that up one, Katie. Um, false witness. This appears so much in Scripture, and I was thinking about it, and I was praying about it this week, and I was like, I mean, how often do we bear false witness? And <laughs> thinking about how I've, I've never been on the stand, and so I am not responsible for this one. And then I was thinking about how often in, uh, my husband and I discuss my stories and my accounts of how things go down and how inaccurate. And while he likes to point out how inaccurate it is, I, I like my big picture, my broad strokes, my, but this is how it happened, and this is the good story, and who cares if it happened on Tuesday or on Thursday. There have been a couple of times where I've come away from a situation, and I've thought, I'll be honest, I really hope this person never meets the person I was talking about because I didn't represent them very well. <laughs> 
it wasn't a true witness to who that person is, the way I told that story, but it was a really funny story and everybody laughed. I just really hope the people who laugh don't actually ever meet the person that I told the story on. <sighs> That's bearing false witness. That's what that is, and I'm just going to fess up to that right now. That is what that is. I bore false witness to who that person is for the sake of my funny story. So I think when we sit with these things, we can see this is where foolishness comes from. I'm be honest, makes me uncomfortable. Because I'd way rather think about the guy with the dingly hat who chooses to be foolish, the idiot that I can't relate to, the person who's so taken up with their pride that they say things and you just stand there looking at them utterly baffled, but they're living their own reality. I'd rather think of the fool as that person than the fool who has these nuanced ways of negotiating the world and they aren't all as true and upright as they could be. So what do we do with this? We don't take it on as identity. It's the first thing. We have to be careful when we read through scripture, particularly something like the Proverbs, and we see this personification of the fool, and then we think, oh, I do that. I do. And you can almost feel the shame. It's like, oh my goodness, I do these things, I do this. That's not how scripture should be used. We should not be clobbered by scripture. This is the opportunity. Anything that does not call us into the richness of who the love of God has declared we are represents a holding back. And we want to let go of anything that would hold us back, that would slow us down. Hebrews talks about letting go of the weight that hinders us from running what's in front of us. If you've ever seen the little kids go, right? They're not held back. And yet sometimes we can hold ourselves back by holding on to these things. And the Holy Spirit comes in and says, hey, 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 let this go. Let this go. You do not need to be weighed down by shame. That is not the Spirit of God. It is the letting go. It's the conviction that says, I do not need to live into this any longer. Why am I doing this? I got to let this go. Very often, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> I don't know how to let this go. Holy Spirit, I need you to show me how to let this go. But it's the start of the conversation. It's the start of the conversation where we begin to walk away from foolishness. There's a passage in here that in chapter 4 that actually talks about how we are so enamored with the appearance of the thing that we give up the abundance of the thing. And that really stood out to me. The idea that we are so enamored with appearance that we give up the abundance. And the trouble with that, for obvious reasons, is that we then contribute to a culture that would rather maintain the appearance than inhabit the abundance that as long as we can keep up the appearance, it doesn't actually matter what we are engaging when it comes to the abundance. This is where we step out of Proverbs and into the New Testament. This is where we identify 
that the culture that we live in is a culture that says, hey, you know what? My need for justice is going to cancel. It's a loaded word. Is going to cancel your perspective, the way that you're living, who you are, and our ability to converse. And we have started to embrace a need that I'm getting it right, and I will hold up the appearance of getting it right over the abundance of continuing to engage the person that I have now turned into the other. There is a book um, by a woman who has done a considerable amount of work in this area, and it's titled, We Will Not Cancel Us. And there's a quote from this book <clears throat> by Adrian. The book is by Adrian. Um, I'm going to get this wrong now. <laughs> it's on the last page. Thank you. Adrian Marie Brown. But the quote, I'm just going to read through this. Movements tend to become the practice ground for what we are healing towards co-creating. Movements are responsible for embodying what we are inviting our people into. We need the people within our movements all socialized into and by unjust systems to be on liberators' paths, not already free, but practicing freedom every day, not already beyond harm, but accountable for doing our individual and internal work to end harm and engage in generative conflict which includes actively working to gain awareness of the ways we can and have harmed each other, where we have significant political differences and where we can end cycles of harm and unprincipled struggles in ourselves and our communities. If we can recognize the anger that is disordered, the foolishness that we engage and our desperate need to maintain the appearance over the abundance of being able to engage. If we can do that, then the engagement becomes something beautiful and otherworldly. It represents an entirely different kingdom way in which we can reach across to who we have considered the other to be and in that, begin to heal ourselves and our communities. This is what Jesus did. And as followers of Jesus, this is what we are called to. There's no other way around it. As much as we would like to maintain our place of rightness and the appearance that we have it figured out, and our anger will make things right if we can just order it. Ultimately, we find ourselves wrapped up in our own foolishness and othering those that we would like to keep at arm's length because we are not prepared to engage the nuance. We are not prepared to engage the conversation that is hard. And so we come to this idea that Proverbs followed through into the life of Jesus is a life where we are the one that Jesus encounters, the one who is struggling with our anger 
that is disordered, struggling with our foolishness in whatever form it manifests, and Jesus comes and sits down and says, hey, how is this going for you? And then offers us bread and wine and life that is abundant. And then says, hey, go do the same thing. Go do it. Go offer this abundance. There's a beautiful moment in Dostoevsky's book um, that, can you, can you get that quote up there? Thank you. There's a beautiful moment um, in Dostoevsky's book, Crime and Punishment, where a character who is the town drunk um, sits down and he has a conversation uh, with Roskolnikov, who is uh, the protagonist in some ways of the story. And um, this man knows what he is. He is ridiculed uh, by the entire town. He can always be found down at the pub. And he has been so bad at parenting that his daughter has now... Um, entered into relationships with people in the town in a way that has been really harmful for her, and she has now been ostracized and labeled by the town. And there is a beautiful conversation that this man has with Raskolnikov, who's trying to understand the idea of grace. And this is what he says. But he, speaking of God, will pity us, the fools, Who has had pity on all men? Who has understood all men and all things? He is the one. He too is the judge. He will come in that day and he will ask, where is the daughter who gave herself for her angry, consumptive stepmother and for the little children of another? Where is the daughter who had pity upon the filthy drunkard, her earthly father, undismayed by his beastliness? And he will say, come to me. I've already forgiven thee once. Thy sins, which are many, are forgiven thee, for thou hast loved much. And he will forgive my Sonia. He will forgive. I know it. And he will judge and he will forgive all, the good and the evil, the wise and the meek. And when he has done with all of them, then he will summon us. You too come forth, he will say. Come forth, ye drunkards. Come forth, ye weak ones. Come forth, ye children of shame. And we shall come forth without shame and shall stand before him. And the wise ones and those of understanding will say, O oh Lord, why dost thou receive these men? And he will say, this is why I receive them, O ye wise. This is why I receive them, O ye of understanding, that not one of them believed himself to be worthy of this. And he will hold out his hands to us, and we shall fall down before him, and we shall weep, and we shall understand all things. Then we shall understand all, and all will understand thy kingdom come. We are all in desperate need of this kind of mercy and grace, and we have all, all been recipients of it. In spite of our anger that is disordered and our foolishness, we find ourselves the recipient of this beautiful, beautiful mercy and grace. May we extend that to all those that we come into contact with.
I'm going to pray for us. Holy God, you who understand our hearts and you who know our whole story, as we have looked through the Proverbs at what you have to say about wisdom, about understanding and about living into a deeper and richer thing than just knowledge. Would you continue to move through us in the places that would hold us back? And would we step into the richness of your grace and your mercy, recognizing that in our foolishness, you have met us. In our disordered anger, you have met us. And in these places, you have called to us and you have said, you are my very own. Would we receive that? Would you give us the capacity to receive that? That we would know the deep, deep love of God. In Jesus' name, amen.